Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, James Rogers, and welcome back to Warfare, a podcast that takes us deep into the history of wars that have shaped and changed our modern world. This week, I've been working on the Ukraine crisis, especially the use of military drones in Ukraine as part of a NATO project that I work on. And it got me thinking... What historical wars and battles can help us understand what's going on in Ukraine today, especially as tensions continue to rise considerably with Russia? To help us understand this, I've brought in expert security policy advisor and historian Elizabeth Braw. Elizabeth has been working on the winter war between the gigantic Soviet Union and tiny Finland, and has come up with some fascinating parallels that help us understand, first, this unbelievable history of how Finland was victorious in freezing battles against the USSR, and second, how a small country with a small military can hold off a vast nation with a superior military. Lessons that are indeed pretty pertinent today. So here is Elizabeth Braw on the Winter War. Enjoy. Hi Elizabeth, welcome to the History Hit Warfare podcast. We're here to talk about this amazing history that you've written. I can't wait to get into it. But before we do that, you are based at AEI. That's in Washington, D.C. What is AEI? AEI is the American Enterprise Institute. It's uh, it's a large think tank in, uh, well, the office is in DuPont Circle, I must say a very palatial office, best office I've ever worked in. And it has a number of different research divisions. I'm part of the foreign defense policy division led by the fantastic Corey Shaki. And um, I was lucky that she brought me on uh, soon after joining AEI herself. Ah, I see. Well, actually, I've been to AEI a couple of times. First, to interview people for my PhD on precision warfare, people like Paul Wolfowitz and, and Richard Pearl. And then later, I was invited to attend the yearly workshop that you hold there in memory of Albert Wallstatter, the, the great nuclear strategist. And so I've always found that history is held in high regard there, about how it can teach us lessons or cast light on current challenges. Is that still the case at AEI? Well, speaking for myself, I can say that I find that as many people wiser than me have said through the generations and indeed through the centuries, that why should we repeat mistakes made by others who lived before us? Why not just 
find out what they did and then try not to repeat it. And so speaking for myself, I can say that history is the absolute best preparation you can have for this sort of work, because when it comes to national security, it's not that different. The tools are different, but the objectives are the same. Well, this is what we like to hear. And this is why, of course, you've chosen to focus on the Winter War, also known as the First Soviet Finnish War, and what it can teach us about the current Russian aggression against Ukraine. So take us all the way back. Take us to 1939. What led to the outbreak of hostilities between the Soviet Union and Finland? So in 1939, Finland was a young nation. We have to remember, it's not, it's not a very old nation. And it had, in fact, gained its independence from Russia just two decades before. And it, it had been a, a very turbulent time. There had been a, a civil war between Reds and Whites in Finland. So Reds, obviously, socialist, communist-leaning Whites, representing more the, the bourgeoisie. And in 1939, the Soviets had what they thought was the brilliant idea that they should retake this country because it was so small and it was so divided. And off they went and they, in their arrogant manner, thought that it, it would be over before winter arrived. We are talking about late November. <laughs> and they didn't even bring a proper winter equipment or even winter clothes for the soldiers, thinking that it would really be a cakewalk just as the Germans thought with, with Denmark and Norway, well, the Finns proved the Soviets wrong. And it's one of the most remarkable chapters of World War II history, that the Finns, in such an inferior position and with so little going for them, that they kept the Soviets, they didn't manage to keep them out, but they managed to keep them uh, bogged down uh, for 105 days throughout the winter. A remarkable achievement. For how many days? 105. Wow, that, that is incredible. So what made the Soviets think that this would be a cakewalk, a, a walk in the park? Did they think that there were still dividing tensions in Finnish society? Were there still the remnants of the, the break-off independence movement? Were there still tensions between the bourgeoisie, the whites and, and the reds? Uh, there was all of that. And that's what the Soviets arrogantly thought would deliver them a, a quick and, and swift and painless victory. They thought the Reds would side with them because they were socialists, uh, left-leaning, but the Reds sided with Finland. And uh, I think, you know, if, if you think of any country, if, if your country is, is invaded, you are more likely to side with your home country than with the invader, even if you share that invader's ideology. But the Soviets, in their arrogance, didn't even didn't even countenance such an option or such a, an outcome. So the Reds and the Whites, indeed, the whole of Finnish society fought together. But what's important to remember is that they had this incredible leader, Field Marshal Mannerheim, who has gone down in history books as one of the greatest military leaders of modern history. He managed to turn this sort of ragtag outfit of, of the Finnish armed forces into a functioning machine, despite the fact that they had very little equipment and, of course, very little training. And thanks to his leadership, they, they managed to get a proper strategy going and, and a strategy that utilized their advantages as small as they were, such as intimate knowledge of the terrain. And so thanks to him and thanks to the Finns uniting behind this common goal, 
despite having ideological differences. They kept the Soviets, as I said, bogged down, but also managed to, to kill quite a few of them. So it, was, it wasn't just sort of a, a matter of a delay for the Soviets. It was a matter of a lot of casualties and, and lost equipment and wounded soldiers. It's so often the case, isn't it, that it comes down to a charismatic, talented leader to see a country through crisis here or to take a military to victory. You can think back to the genius of an Allenbrook or a Field Marshal Montgomery to take us through to victories during the Second World War. So tell us what happens here in the Finnish case. How long had they had to prepare for this conflict? Not very long at all. And you have to remember that the Finnish economy was improving, but Finland was still a very poor country by regional standards, or rather compared to Sweden, it's its closest neighbor. So even if it had had more time, it wouldn't have had a lot of money to invest in, in its military defense. And it also didn't have a significant or extensive officer corps with, with training maybe from other countries. All of that was new to this young country. And you have to remember that somebody like, like Mannerheim himself had been trained as an officer in Russia because Finland at that point was part of Russia. So well, the, the whole institutional framework that you need for a country to set itself up for war, all of that the Finns didn't have. And, and so that makes it even more remarkable that, that they managed to maybe not improvise on the spot, but managed to, to set themselves up time to prepare, even though it was clear to them, I think, months before November 1939, that the Soviets might have designs on their country. But even if, if you have such a fear or, or realization that it may happen, if you don't have the resources to do anything about it, there's not very much you can do to prepare. I can already start to see the parallels between the Winter War and the Ukraine crisis as we start to think of Putin's announcements about how he was there with his responsibility to protect the Russian-speaking people of Ukraine and, of course, how there was at least initial thought that the country may be able to fall quite quickly. There would be little resistance, but that has been boiling on since 2014 and, of course, has reached a climactic point most recently. When did the Finnish Winter War reach its climactic moment? What was the major battle that we can talk about here? One climactic battle was uh, took place in mid-December around a village that is of no significance, as is so often the case in military history. Significant battles take place in towns or villages of little fame otherwise, but turn out to be decisive points. So uh, this battle went on for 10 days in December, and the Finns, as ever, were completely outgunned, and, and the Soviets arrived with tanks and other heavy equipment, and the Finns just had their customary uh, soldiers in, in snowsuits and <laughs> on skis and uh, carrying maximum rifles and, and, of course, their famous Molotov cocktails. We have to remember, I think it's, it's really important for history podcast, the Finns popularized the Molotov cocktails. They didn't invent them, but they popularized them during the Winter War, because it was such a, an effective weapon that they could use. It's a cheap weapon and it's effective. And that's what they did. So armed with Molotov cocktails and rifles and very little else, they took on the Soviets in this battle that went on for 10 days in, in this town of no significance. And they won. Remarkable. And shudder to think what happened to the, the various uh, officers who commanded on the Soviet side, because this was a defeat that shouldn't have happened. It was was in fact a completely obvious victory for the 
should have been a completely obvious victory for the Soviet side. The, the Finns won. And that's what gave the Finns, on the 22nd of December 1939, that's what gave them the confidence to think that maybe we have a chance of keeping them out. And in the end, the winter war lasted for 105 days, but the Finns didn't lose. And I think that's so important to remember. Yes, they had to make concessions, but they were not occupied. And I think that the, really the most important turn of event to remember is that 22nd of December when they actually won the battle. So they gave the Soviets a beasting bloody nose, which brings the population behind them and shows that perhaps we can hold off the Red Army. No small feat. So how many numbers are we talking about here? How many do the Finns have? How many are they facing in terms of the Soviets? So when the Soviets retreated from this town of Tolvajärvi, they had lost, and these are the figures I have from the Finnish Armed Forces archive, the Soviets had lost more than 3,000 men and several hundred others had been injured, whereas the Finns had lost only 274 men and another 445 had been injured and 29 had been lost. That's really quite something. And how many had the Soviets had in, in total there? And how many had the Finns had in total? When the Soviets arrived in this town of Tolvajärvi, they arrived with around 20,000 men, so a, a complete division. And along with the men, they had tanks, cannon and armoured vehicles. And the Finns, by contrast, had around 4,000 soldiers uh, who were rudimentarily equipped, unsurprisingly. And they had been assembled from various units, so they weren't even a, a complete unit. They had been put together on short notice. When the battle ended, 10 days later, the Soviets had lost around 3,500 men, so around 3,000 killed and several hundred injured. The Finns, by contrast, had lost 274 men, while another 445 had been injured. So we're looking at a huge difference in proportion among soldiers killed and injured on, on the two sides. Really an incredible achievement by the Finns. That is phenomenal. How is that even possible? What's the geography of Tolviavi like? Is this a mountainous region? Was it a kind of home pitch advantage here for the Finns? Did they know that area inside out? So they're able to move tactically, quickly, move around the Soviet troops. And like you say, launching those Molotovs against tanks. It, in essence, it was their quick footedness or I suppose quick skiingness, which meant they were able to just really root out and have an advantage against the Soviets? It's really their local knowledge. And so this is, I think, again, the arrogance of major powers. They think they can come in with their fantastic equipment and just crush everybody. <laughs> Turns out that the mother nature has her quirks and she has her places where you can hide and she has her places that are, are maybe difficult to cross or, or have uh, difficult terrain. Well, the Finns knew all of that and the Soviets knew none of it because they hadn't learned the lesson from, from when uh, Finland was part of Russia. They, they really hadn't done their homework because they were so sure of the superior nature of their equipment and, of course, their much larger number of soldiers. So the Finns really took advantage of their local knowledge and the images of Finnish soldiers sort of blending into the snow. They are part of history. Uh, this is not your, your traditional battle. It's individual Finnish soldiers or in small groups lying down in the snow and, 
and shooting with a rifle, so throwing Molotov cocktails. It's sort of almost the most rudimentary form of warfare, or you can call it an early form of insurgency. Whatever you want to call it, it was incredibly successful and took advantage of, of the Finns' knowledge of the terrain in the region and the fact that they, for example, were dressed for the weather. You know, they had snowsuits and that not just kept them warm, but also allowed them to, to blend into the landscape. Have you heard? History is going to Antarctica and we're taking you with us. I'm Dan Snow and I'm be part of an incredible expedition to try and locate the missing endurance shipwreck. Ernest Shackleton's vessel that was crushed by the ice and sent to the depths during his 1914 attempt to cross the vast continent from side to side. Whether you're a Shackleton expert or this story is completely new to you, we've got something special for you. It starts on the 7th of February when we'll be dropping a captivating mini-series that tells the tale of just how Shackleton and his crew managed to survive months stranded in the coldest place on Earth with no shelter, no ship, and no contact with the outside world. How they made an escape that defies the very limits of human endurance through the planet's roughest oceans in a wooden rowing boat, walking across mountains and glaciers, all with not enough food or water. So, make sure you subscribe to Dan Snow's History Hit wherever you listen to your podcast to get the full story. Endurance 22, coming February 7th. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. But am I right in thinking this wasn't just a military effort? There was also a whole society effort in terms of supply lines and making sure the troops were fed and ready and kept warm and there and present for battle, including a group called the Lotters. Is that right? 
Yes, it is. So this is really where something that has since become known as total defense, that's where it begins. Because it wasn't just men in uniform and it was just men. And by the way, they were overwhelmingly reservist, which is an achievement in its own right. But they were backed up by older men and by younger men and, and women and also by women of all ages in civil society who kept society going, who assisted with logistics, who assisted in, in keeping society going so that it didn't fall apart because uh, all these men were fighting a war. And the Lotas, that is a, a remarkable organization. So Lotasvad is the protagonist of a famous sort of epic poem by a Finnish poet writing in Swedish called Runeberg in English. And he tells in this epic poem called Fenrik Stolzegnus, so the tales of Fenrik Stol, he tells the story of uh, this war where women led by a woman called Lottasvad provide the food to the soldiers during the war and thus uh, help them, well, sustain them uh, physically. And uh, based on this epic poem, Finland started an organization called the Lottas, named after this literary figure, Lottasvad, in the epic poem, and it became, it had its baptism of fire, I suppose you could say, during the Winter War, where it played a crucial role. And then the organization was adopted or adapted by Sweden, where it still exists to this day. And I'm happy to talk about what happened to such Finnish organizations after World War II, but the point is that the Lottas still exist in Sweden today, and it's all based on, on the inspiring example of, of the Finnish Winter War. Oh, wow. Well, I've got to ask a question. I think I know the answer to this one. Stalin wasn't known to be a, a mild-mannered man. What was his reaction? What was the reaction of his commanders when they found out that they had been beaten back by this small group of troops in Finland, a war that was meant to be so easy? <laughs> it was complete humiliation. And what was worse than that was that around the time of the Finns winning that battle of Tolvajärvi, it was Stalin's birthday celebration. Well, you can imagine the mood at that birthday celebration. Horrible. <laughs> so, <laughs> it was not a happy month for Stalin. And as you know, he just in general had a habit of killing and having imprisoned leading military officers and thinkers of the Red Army. And as a result, ended up with a sort of a totally incompetent or almost incompetent uh, military. And it's a total embarrassment. I don't know whether whether his purges resulted in really totally embarrassing performance in Finland or whether the fear was such that the commander didn't uh, dare to improvise on the spot. But uh, either way, it speaks to Stalin's failure as a leader. I think you're exactly right. And the strategic impact of the purges, I think, is is becoming increasingly well known. It would be so interesting to see to what extent that did influence this massive, you could say, defeat in the Winter War. But how more widely was this known at the time? Did this victory for the Finns make headlines around the world? Did it dent the reputation of the Red Army? It certainly did. And so here's something that I read, for example, in a newspaper in published in Champaign, Illinois, uh, so uh, hardly your most metropolitan newspaper. And it uh, reported on page one on December 22, so the day the battle ended, so with news clearly from December 21, it reported, destruction of an entire battalion of Russians in the bitter cold of the lake country was reported 
after a day in which the Soviets unleashed the fury of their air armada in a series of bombing attacks on Helsinki and a score of nearby towns. So, and this is again in Illinois, uh, very far from Tolvajärvi or indeed any other place in Helsinki. And we should remember also that people in Sweden, the government and the population in Sweden were paying extremely close attention. And they were not just paying attention, but many helped the, the Finns in this effort. So there was something called the Swedish Volunteer Corps, where Swedish men could volunteer to fight with the Finns. The Swedish government didn't send an official contingent, but you could volunteer in a personal capacity, and several thousand did. And I think it's one of the most heartwarming chapters of World War II history that they did, and that they were part of this really inspiring and historic effort to keep really an extremely hostile and ill-intentioned country, keep it at bay, even though they didn't manage to completely defeat it. And many of the Finnish children were evacuated during this time as well, weren't they, to Sweden and to Denmark? Yeah, so so during World War II, as in many other countries, in Finland, uh, children were evacuated. In Finland, of course, the, the problem was that there was really no safe place in Finland to go for many of them. So where are you going to go if, if you have a long land border with Russia and your country is likely to be run over not just once but twice? Um, so while in the UK, children were evacuated to the countryside, in the north, for example, Finnish children were often evacuated to, to Denmark and even more often to Sweden. And to this day, they often remain in these countries. So they grew up with the, their host families. And it will be interesting to see if, if somebody can establish what the motivations were, if their parents thought it would be better for them to remain there permanently, or if their parents couldn't find them. Whatever the, the motivation was, many of them remained with the host families and are known to this day as Finnish war children. And for example, one of my classmates in elementary school, in primary school, her mother, Eira, uh, was a Finnish war child. And in, I shouldn't say old, old age, but in, in, her, in, in her 50s, I remember she managed to track down her, her birth parents. What an incredible reunion after so many years and considering the circumstances under which she had been uh, brought to Sweden. Well, I've actually been looking a bit more into this story of the Finnish war children and the children of the Winter War. And I'm, I've, I've managed to track down an organisation that brings the survivors together each year. And I've got a meeting with them later this month. So I'm really keen to sit down with some of those who remained in Denmark after they'd been evacuated. So I'm going to find all of these answers out for you and for our listeners. And we're going to have a dedicated show just on this topic. But Let's move forward towards the end of this conflict, because, of course, the Finns weren't going to be able to hold out forever against the might of the Soviet Union. So how did this war really end? Surely it must have come to an end with a, a political agreement. Yeah, so after 105 days, the Finns uh, signed an armistice with, with the Soviet Union. So they were not defeated. They, they were not occupied. They didn't become part of what was later to become the Warsaw Pact, but they, well, they clearly didn't win, and they there was no there was no way they could conceivably win. I think the the really depressing thing is that nobody came to their aid. 
not even Sweden, which of course was keen to stay out of the war altogether. But America didn't come to, to Finland's aid, nor did the UK. Of course, the UK had, had its own problems and, and was trying to, to prepare itself for the uh, inevitable uh, German attack. So, but the point is that the Finns were on their own. Then what many people may remember is that it was something called the Continuation War, where the Finns did receive aid and military uh, cooperation from Germany, and they once again fought against the Soviets. But the outcome of all of this is that Finland, at the end of uh, World War II, had lost about a tenth of its territory, and in a, a few years after the war, they, the Finns were forced to sign something called the Friendship Treaty with the Soviet Union. As you know, Soviet friendship treaties were never really about friendship. It was about the Soviets imposing their will on other countries. But nevertheless, the Friendship Treaty allowed Finland to continue to exist as an independent country. And even with a slightly Western-leaning uh, orientation, but it had to consult with, with the Soviets uh, and in, uh, sort of not offend the Soviets and, in fact, maintain close relations with the Soviets. So if when people look at Finland's Cold War history, they often say, well, yeah, they were always uh, in, in such close contact with the Soviets and people talk about Finlandization. Well, it's a result of that friendship treaty that, that was really the best possible outcome in, in, a, in a horrible situation for the Finns. And as a result of, of that reality during the Cold War, Finland obviously couldn't join NATO and, and Sweden didn't either, which makes Finland's statement or the two Finnish leaders' statements about Finland uh, deciding for itself whether it will join NATO, which they made a few days ago. That makes those statements even more important because Finland has this decades-long history of consulting with Moscow as a result of that uh, friendship treaty that was imposed on them. Yes, and this is where we reach our contemporary point of heightened tensions. As President Putin says that America and, and NATO are pushing onto the, the doorstep or onto the, the porch of Russia and that they feel more hemmed in than ever and that there needs to be agreements for troops to be moved out of the Baltic, for agreements to be made in Ukraine and of course agreements for Sweden and Finland not to join NATO. So I'm assuming at this point that the battle we're talking about, the, the victories in, in the Winter War, they're not remembered much in Russia today and they're probably not taught in the schools there. So to take us through, what can we learn about this as we move through this really turbulent period? What can we, what can Ukraine learn from this history that you've brought to us? The most important thing is the, the importance of societal cohesion without the rest of society backing the armed forces up, they would not have been able to, to achieve what they achieved. And it was not just a matter of logistical assistance and, and keeping society going. It was also a matter of the point that, that cohesion, including between people of completely different political persuasions, that cohesion signaled to the Soviet Union that we have divisions within our society, but that doesn't matter because we are united against you and in favor of our country. And there is nothing more powerful, I think, to, to signal to an adversary or a potential invader or attacker than unity within the country. Because any, any invader, any attacker, any adversary will exploit uh, gaps within society. It was true then, it's true today. But the Finns signaled that they were united. And I think that's what 
the Ukrainians should signal today too. Unfortunately, I, it seems harder for them than for Finns back then, but we should remember that Finland was extremely divided. And so if they could do it, why uh, should it be impossible for, for the Ukrainians or any other country? Yes, Ukraine, of course, is a, a very different context and is far more divided than arguably Finland was at that point of conflict. And of course, the geography is very different. It's, it's harder to defend. But I agree, I think there's so many lessons to learn from this remarkable part of history, from how a, a small country with a small military held off the Soviet Red Army. Thank you so much for taking the time to tell us all about this. And I've, I've got to ask, where can our listeners read more about it and read more of your work? They can go to foreignpolicy.com. That's where I write about twice a month, often about uh, new forms of national security threats and risks, including um, threats against globalization, which is something that I'm greatly concerned about. What does it mean, for example, when a country such as China retaliates against another country by targeting that country's companies? And that's something that, that we're completely unprepared for. We are mostly prepared, I think, in a military sense, but companies operate globally and uh, are not set up for geopolitical confrontation because they've been told for three decades to globalize and, and to maximize markets and profits by spreading their operations around the world. Now that's a vulnerability. Uh, that's, for example, one area that I focus on. And of course, a great deal on uh, the issue of total defense and what it should look like today. It doesn't need to be a, a complete copy of what Finland did in 1939 and 1940, but I think there are ways of creating contemporary versions of it where everybody can play a part in, in keeping their respective countries safe. Brilliant, Elizabeth. Thank you so much. So much food for thought. And you're always welcome on the History Hit Warfare podcast. Thank you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW. 
And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.